This morning, we're going to be in Colossians 4. You can turn there now if you'd like. We're going to be in Colossians 4. And if you grabbed a Bible from the lobby on the way in, one of those Black Pew Bibles, it's on page 985. Page 985 is where you're going to find Colossians 4. We're going to be looking at verses 2 to 4 this morning. And if you're new to Scripture... You're new to opening up a Bible. Maybe you don't do it very often. Uh, the big numbers on your page are chapters, and the little numbers are verse numbers. So we're going to be in Colossians 4, page 985, on, in verses 2 to 4. This passage is all focused on prayer. This passage is focused on prayer. I think if we're honest with ourselves, prayer is a pretty often neglected spiritual practice in our lives. It's something we want to do. If it, At the beginning of the year, you ask a Christian, what do you want to grow in this year? Nine times out of ten, they're going to say, along with maybe a list of other things, I want to pray more. I want to be more faithful in prayer. I want to depend upon the Lord in that way more often. And this is right because we need prayer. Prayer is perhaps the single most effective thing you can do every day that will result in the purposes of God coming to be. And prayer is the simplest thing that you can do every day to humble yourself before God. It's so easy to do, yet it's so easy to forget. It's so easy to walk through our days forgetting God, forgetting that we need his help, forgetting that we need his strength. And so Colossians 4, 2 to 4, is a good passage for any Christian in any time because in it, Paul explains to us three things. In a very specific way, he's focusing in on the nature of prayer, the attitude of prayer, and the content of prayer. And he's not going to give us a big overarching theology of prayer, why we pray, why God hears us and listens to us. We can talk about those things. We'll mention them. He gets very specific into the practice of prayer and a few specific ways that we can and should pray. So because man must not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, turn to Colossians 4 with me, and we're going to read verses 2 to 4. This is God's word. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. That right there was the only perfect part of our service. The reading of God's inerrant and inspired and infallible word. Praise God for his word. 
God desires that we would be a praying people. He desires that we would be a people in our daily lives that are used and desire to be effective for him. These few short verses find themselves in a little bit of a broader range here. Typically, they're joined together with verses 5 and 6, where he talks about how we relate to outsiders, those who are not Christians, how we use our time, what our speech is like. And Paul's overarching theme in this small portion of Colossians is that we would be useful to the Lord, that we would have lives that are useful unto the purposes of God. It's couched within a larger section. Most of Paul's letters, Paul, an apostle, um, if you read your Bible in the New Testament and you flip through, it's likely that one of every other book or so is going to be one of Paul's writings. Paul wrote this letter to a church in Colossae, a New Testament church in the Roman Empire. And um, his main point in Colossians is that we would see Christ as supreme and sufficient for both salvation and for sanctification. That we would see Christ as the only one who can and is able to save us. And that he is supreme over all things because of that. And that we would see that he's the only one that can help us live a life to honor him. Like many of Paul's letters, it's kind of broken into two sections. You get a lot of theology, just truth, biblical truth up front, mainly in chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. And then towards the second half of Colossians, you get a lot of practical matters. In the second half of verse 2, he starts to speak of our union with Christ. Our union with Christ. The fact that because we have trusted in Christ for salvation, we are intrinsically tied to him. We are now his. And because he died, it's as if we had died and paid for sin, but he did it for us. And because he rose and defeated sin and death, so too we can consider ourselves risen to new life in Christ. He expounds upon this more in Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4, where he talks about being raised with Christ. And in, in Colossians 3, 1 to 4, he very clearly paints the picture that the person who has trusted in Christ as sufficient to save them and has been united to Christ in their salvation must focus on Christ. He says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And it, Colossians 3, to me, is really the heart of the practical matters that Paul is getting to. Because he starts with, how do we think, Colossians 3, 1 to 4. And then he gets into, in Colossians 3, 5 to 17, how do we live? And he tells us that if we're to grow in Christ, if our minds are set on Christ and we want to honor Christ, then we must put off the old self, we must kill sin. By the power of the Spirit, Him working within us, we are to, in verses 12 to 17, put on the new self. Put on the new self. And so he gives us this formula for walking in Christ, walking with Christ. And then, moving closer to our actual passage today, in verse 18, he gets into really practical matters, not just overarching big sanctification things. You know, be holy as God is holy. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. He talks about specific situations. Well, how is it fitting for husbands and wives to relate to one another? 
In this time, there were slaves and masters. How should a Christian slave and a Christian master in the New Testament church relate to one another? Fathers, how do you relate to your children? Children, if you're a believer, how is it fitting in the Lord if you are in Christ to live with your parents? And in all things you do, he says this. Verse 23, Colossians 3. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. He's starting to get into work heartily unto the Lord. Be useful unto the Lord. What's the overarching purpose of your life? It's usefulness for God's purposes, for his plan, for what he would have you do. Not what man would have you do, not what your boss would have you do, not what your wife or your husband would have you do, but what God would have you do. And in the vein of this, he gets to prayer. Because I believe Paul knows that prayer is key to faithful Christian living. Prayer is like breath, breathing, taking in air for your soul. Without it, you begin to shrivel up, curl up and die. And so, point number one, as we look at this passage, is the nature of prayer. And Paul doesn't state it explicitly here, but the nature of prayer is dependence. God desires that we would be praying, that we would be people devoted to him, dependent upon him. He is a good father. He is a kind father. He desires, like any good father would, that his children bring their needs before him. Fathers, you would never turn away your child in need. And we are needy people. God never shies away from hearing our prayers, our hopes, our failures, our needs, our sins, our petitions, our requests, our intercessions on others' behalves, and everything else in life. He wants to hear our prayers. His desire is that we would commune with him and have relationship with him in this way. Nature of prayer is dependence. Dependence upon God. Because if we are to be useful for the Lord, if we are to have fruitful lives, and if we're to have true prayer lives, it will always stem. It will always stem from true dependence and humility before the Lord. We are feeble people. We are on our own weak people. On our own, we fail. So the Christian life requires a posture of humility. And when we humble ourselves before God, we know that we must depend on him. And prayer, I think, is the central and key way outside of acknowledging our need for Christ at salvation that we depend on him. You've probably heard it said before that prayerlessness is functional atheism. If you're not praying, you probably don't even believe that God exists. And so, we must depend upon God. The nature of prayer is dependence. And directly from our text, Paul tells us that we are to continue 
steadfastly. Verse 2, he opens up this passage, continue steadfastly in prayer. So prayer is not just dependent, but it is meant to be steadfast, always present, necessary. Steadfast prayer is continual prayer. Maybe if you're reading a different version than the ESV, which I have up here, it says, devote yourselves to prayer. And that's the idea here. It's frequent, devoted prayer. Every day, every moment, every situation, whether big or small or bad or good, continue steadfastly in prayer. Paul makes no hesitation here and he qualifies it with nothing he didn't say what kind of prayer or in what moments he just said continue steadfastly in prayer prayerlessness isn't just functional atheism prayerlessness is pride there are no sufficient christians in and of yourself you are not Sufficient. We are dependent upon God for all things. Not just spiritual realities, but for every blessing and everything that we have in this life. And so in everything, we must pray. Only a fool neglects to pray. Only a fool thinks that he can go on about his day without the Lord's help. And so Paul tells us, devote yourself to prayer. Continue steadfastly, immovably in prayer. And this echoes many other passages you know that speak of continual prayer. Think about 1 Thessalonians 5.17, where Paul says, pray without, hey, good job. Paul says, pray without ceasing. I was not expecting anything. This was like the youth kids. Sometimes they'll give me a response because they're like, you know, always looking for a moment to talk. Way to go. We'll try this again. We're supposed to pray without ceasing. Praise the God. Praise the Lord. You know, your Bible is Romans 12, 12. Paul tells us to be constant in prayer. If you are steadfast, if you are devoted in your prayer life, Prayer will become the way by which you process everything else. If you are steadfast in prayer, prayer is the way that you process all of life. To be steadfast in prayer basically means that the language of your heart is prayer. Some of you are saying right now, Steadfast prayer. Praying without ceasing. Is that even possible? Could I even begin to do this? Michael, do you want me to walk around and murmur prayers underneath my breath all day long? Is this what I'm supposed to do? None of your mouths are moving, so I know you're not doing it right now. Not that I'm saying you should be. We're not meant to be constantly uttering verbally prayers before the Lord every single moment of every single day. 
This wouldn't be possible. You'd be a terrible employee. You'd be a terrible spouse. You'd be a terrible parent. You'd be listening terribly right now. The idea isn't that you're talking in prayer all day long, verbally, but it's that you are consumed by prayer. That you're consumed by prayer. That prayer, if you would, is like the lenses by which you see everything else. That from the moment you wake up to the moment that you go to sleep, your life, your day has been characterized by prayer. Sinclair Ferguson, a theologian and pastor whom I love, you should read his books if you can, says that prayer is practicing the presence of God. Prayer is practicing the presence of God. So continual prayer, prayer that does not cease, is you internally acknowledging the Lord's presence in every moment of every day, in every situation, good, bad, ugly, and wonderful. The early church was characterized by this sort of prayer. Think with me to Acts the very beginning of the book, Acts 1.14, what does it say? They devoted themselves to prayer. This is what the disciples were doing. Acts 2.42, this is right, um, around when Pentecost happens. What is happening with all these believers getting saved? They devoted themselves to prayer. Acts 6.4, the apostles encounter some division in the church uh, among some different kind of ethnic groups that, you know, there's Greeks and there's Jews and they're, they're kind of afraid that some of the widows aren't being cared for the right way in the church and it's, the issue's brought before them. And how do they react? Do they just come up with a solution? Do they say, well, I think this is going to work? Maybe even if it was a simple one. Oh, let's just find some people to help with this, some deacons. What do they do? We will devote ourselves to prayer. Prayer also preceded an innumerable amount of amazing things that happened in the book of Acts. Of God working through his people and through his church as he advances his mission. Listen to this list. Prayer, chapter 1, precedes the coming of the Holy Spirit. Prayer precedes Pentecost where 3,000 people are saved as they preach the gospel in one day. Prayer precedes the Samaritans receiving the Holy Spirit and their faith being confirmed. And persecution throughout the book of Acts. Whether they're beaten or whether they're jailed and imprisoned, the disciples, the apostles pray. And no matter what happens, through their prayers, God empowers them to continue preaching faithfully the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 12.5, Peter is in prison. And this is what it says. The disciples earnestly were praying. And the Lord, what does he do? He hears their prayers and an angel shows up to save Peter. Not a common occurrence, is it? So the early church prayed over and over and over and over again. They were marked by prayer that was not ceasing. By continuing steadfastly in prayer. In our lives, we're involved in a sort of spiritual battle, aren't we? 
Still, as a believer, you're not perfect. You battle sin every single day. Scripture tells us that Satan prowls around like a lion and he's looking for opportunities to tempt us, to trap us in sin. He's a deceiver. The world is full of lies and things that are anti-God and anti-gospel. It's fraught with danger of all kinds. And as Christians, just like the early church, we need to pray. Because without prayer, we are not armed for this spiritual warfare. Without prayer, it's like walking into battle without a gun or without a shield or without a sword. Right? What's the saying? Don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Like, oh my goodness, you're toast. Don't walk through life without prayer. What are you thinking? It'd be crazy to do that. So steadfast prayer is continual. And it characterizes our lives. But steadfast prayer, devoted prayer, is also persistent. So the nature of prayer is that we are to be dependent upon God. That we are to be steadfast and devoted to prayer. And because we are steadfast, that we are to be persistent in our prayers. Perhaps you've heard Pastor Eric speak of praying persistently. Sticking to your prayers. Basically, being so serious about the things you pray for that no matter the answer that the Lord gives you, you will continue to bring them before the throne of grace. On and on and on, just like the early church did. Prayer is an interesting thing, isn't it? Perhaps sometimes you feel like you pray and praying into an oblivion, (laughs) that God doesn't hear you. But throughout Scripture, there are commands to pray, much like this one. Jesus even instructs his disciples how to pray. Because God intends to to accomplish his purposes throughout the world, in your life and in mine, through prayer. God invites us into his redemptive work. God invites us into his sovereign, providential work throughout mankind, throughout history, in mankind's hearts, to participate. He wants us to bring things before him. He desires to answer our prayers. Christian, your prayers have significance. God will use them. To accomplish his purposes. And he wants to use them to accomplish his purposes. James tells us, the book of James, that the prayers of a righteous man are powerful. In 1 John we read that if we ask anything in Jesus' name, that our prayers are heard. Basically that if we pray in accordance with God's will, then we know that God hears us. But as we pray, sometimes the answers are slow, aren't they? Sometimes it takes a year. That thing you've been praying for, or maybe that thing you prayed for once, to receive an answer. Yes or no. And in the middle, you're just like, I don't know. 
Lord, at times, is slow to answer our prayers because he will answer them in his will, in his good providence. And even while we pray and God gives us no answer, God has a purpose in this. I think he's wanting to see if we really want his answers to our prayers. Because he's trying to remind us to carry on, to grow in our ability, to hold on to his promises. And every prayer that piles up, you should know that God is still listening, even if there's no answer yet. George Mueller, you've heard examples of George Mueller from the pulpit here at Grace Rancho before. Um, He was a Christian evangelist who lived in the 1800s. He had an orphanage in England. And he is perhaps one of the most stark and remarkable examples of faithful and persistent and steadfast prayer in all of church history. He prayed for the salvation of five men that he knew starting in November of 1844. He knew these men from various places. Two of them actually were just sons of people who he had known when he was young. He prayed for that salvation starting in November 1844. It took 18 months, a year and a half, for the first man to be converted and trust Christ for salvation. That seems like a long time to us, doesn't it? A year and a half to pray for this. It took five more years for the second man out of the bunch receive Christ as his Savior, for George Mueller's prayer for him to be answered. It took six years for the third man to be converted. Six whole years. George Mueller wrote this about praying for these men. I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether sick or in health, on the land or on the sea, and whatever the pressure of my engagements might be. 36 years went by. And the two men who George Mueller was praying for had yet to be converted. And this is what he wrote. That he has been praying day by day for nearly 36 years for the conversion of these individuals. Yet, they remain unconverted. And he says, but I hope in God I pray on and look yet for the answer. They are not converted yet, but they will be. George Mueller never saw these men's conversions. He never saw them get saved. He prayed for 52 straight years. I have no idea how many days in a row that is. Somebody can do the math later. Until he passed in 1897. And then just a few years after he passed, both men came to Christ. Both men turned to trust in Christ as their Savior. And George Mueller never saw it. But his prayers were answered. His prayers were answered because he kept knocking on the door of heaven. Praying that God would just open these men's hearts to the gospel. This is perseverance and prayer. This is persistence and prayer. And that's not the only example. If you read through George Mueller's autobiography, it's like day by day by day. He'll count like, you know, 64 times I prayed for this and for that and the other thing. He prayed and he prayed and he prayed because he knew God hear him, heard him, and he knew that if it be the Lord's will, he would answer him. 
So our prayers to God are to be steadfast, dependent upon him, and somewhat incessant. Praying is a constant endeavor for the Christian. Like I said before, praying is like breathing. It gives life to our souls. It keeps us going. But while we pray, while prayer is meant to be steadfast and persistent, there's a certain attitude that Paul encourages us towards. Not just an attitude of I'm going to trust God and I'm going to keep praying. And I'm going to trust that he will answer. But two things, that we are to be watchful in our prayers and that we are to be thankful in our prayers. Be watchful. What does Paul say? Continue steadfastly in prayer. This is verse 2. Being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Part of the way that we devote ourselves to steadfast prayer is by being watchful. This term watchful is like being awake, having your eyes open, being ready. It's like being on your toes, ready to jump and pray at any moment. This is how we're supposed to live the Christian life. We're to always be ready to offer every situation the Lord in prayer. Nothing should happen in your life that you do not pray for. Dependence upon God in every moment. And everything, take it to the Lord in prayer. Lord, see this thing that's happened. I need your help. Help me. Lord, help me parent my child. Help me be a faithful worker. Lord, this thing, bless it. May your work be in it. Lord, give me wisdom. This really is how Christians are meant to live. Looking for another thing to pray for. Even asking God, Lord, what would you have me pray for next? We're supposed to be in a steady flow of communication with the Lord. Constant communion. Bringing everything before him. Often, though, we, we do the opposite, don't we? If I'm honest, often I just go through my day. I go through my life, I go through my week, I go through my month, and I've missed so many opportunities to rely on the Lord in prayer. We spend our lives dependent upon ourselves. We just somehow expect that we have the answers to life, that we can solve complex situations, that our wisdom is enough, or maybe that guy's wisdom that I took in. Prayerlessness is a marker of pride. A prayerless life is a life of independence from the Lord, and a prayerful life is a mark of dependence upon God. Prayerlessness shows that we lack faith. So, how do we combat this? We're to be awake. We're to be watchful. We're to be ready. A prayer life is sort of a spiritual litmus test. How is our relationship with the Lord? How are my prayers? What am I praying about? Do I pray? 
To be watchful in prayer is a sign of life, that you're alive, that you see life through spiritual lenses. So ask yourself now, how might I more consistently depend upon the Lord in prayer? If you're taking notes, write that question down, and tomorrow morning, open it up and ask yourself, today, how might I be more consistently dependent upon the Lord in prayer? Ask yourself, what little moments of life can I just grab hold of and commit to prayer? On your commute to work, do you spend time praying? Do you spend time doing nothing? In the small moments of your life, when you have to discipline your children, do you ask God for help, for wisdom? As you walk into a meeting, or your cubicle, or the place you're going to work, do you pray for patience, for grace, that you would be salt and light where you are, where God has placed you? When you speak with your neighbors, I hope you speak with your neighbors, you pray for the fruit of the Spirit to be so evident in your life. We're to be watchful. We're to be alert. We're to be aware. We're to be alive in our prayer life. And this fuels steadfast prayer. When our eyes are up, when we're looking for anything that we could possibly pray for, we pray more often. And we build a habit of prayer and depending upon the Lord in all things. When you're alert and you're looking, you'll never lack for things to pray for. In our membership class, we often say, you know, look around you. Every person represents a hundred needs or a thousand needs. Ministry is people work. Get to work in the lives of people. Help them. And I'd say when you look around you and you see every person or you just look around your life, you won't come up with just a hundred. You'll come up with a thousand or a hundred thousand things you could possibly pray for. So our attitude is that we're supposed to be awake, watchful. Our disposition is that we're looking for ways to pray. And Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Thankfulness um, is a surprisingly common theme throughout Colossians. There's like five times in just a couple chapters that Paul is saying, be thankful, be thankful, be thankful. Our prayer lives need to be steadfast, but they need to be thankful. Prayers are to be marked with thanksgiving. Because the Christian, because you Christian, have been so blessed beyond all measure, because Christ has lavished you with his riches of grace, because he set your feet now on new, solid ground. Because he's made you part of now this spiritual realm. You're alive in Christ. You are to be thankful. Because you have such a glorious position in Christ. You should constantly praise him for it. Discontent Christians are supposed to be an anomaly. Do Christians hurt? Yes, do Christians suffer? Yes. Is life hard? Yes. What did Mark have us say a few weeks back? Is life hard? Duh. Life is difficult. Life is not easy. Does that mean that we should go through our days begrudgingly? 
angry at the world and angry with God? Never. Never. Thankfulness and prayer is to be a marker of our lives. And thankfulness is to be the disposition of the Christian. There's um, a wonderful illustration I love from church history. And I don't remember which pastor it was, but he was a pastor in England. And he would go and, and visit people in small towns and parishes. And at one point, he goes to visit a woman. Um, and she knocks on his He's about to knock on, on her tiny little door of this little shack she lives in. And um, he hears her praying. And all she has for the day in her hands is a cup of water and a piece of bread. And yet she's praying, all of this, in addition to what I've received in Christ, Lord, you've already blessed me so much, You've given me Christ and you would give me this? She has nothing. We would say she has nothing by our standards. Yet she was thankful. Why? Why was she thankful? Why can we be thankful in every circumstance, in every moment? Because God has already given us riches in Christ. He's given us everything we need. Every spiritual blessing, Christian, is yours. Grace, forgiveness, redemption, pardon. All of it is yours. You don't need anything else. You've been given everything you need in Christ. Anything else is like whipped cream and frosting and sprinkles and the cherry on top. It's just fluff on top of the real stuff that Christ has given you. Christ has blessed you so much. And so Christians are meant to be thankful. All of these things are interrelated. We're supposed to continue steadfastly and it's fueled by being watchful. And I think when we're watchful, it fuels our thanksgiving. And then our thanksgiving fuels our watchfulness and that fuels our steadfastness. Because when I pray a lot, I'm looking for things to pray for. And when I'm looking for things to pray for, I pray a lot. And when I'm looking for God's work in my life, there will always be something to praise him for. There will always be something to thank him for. Because you've been blessed beyond measure. Christians are the richest people in the world. How could we not continually, unceasingly express our gratitude to the Lord? George Mueller puts it this way, another George Mueller. The first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing he does, his first priority is that he would be happy, blessed, thankful in the Lord. Is happiness in God, is thankfulness in God your disposition? Is it kind of that mood that underlies your life, that reality that is true no matter what? You can be frustrated and thankful. You can have hardship and be thankful. Because that which is most fundamentally true about you, that which Christ has given you, never disappears in hard circumstances. You could go through anything. And those 
truths. The reality that you are in Christ will never change. And so happiness in God, true contentment, is to be a priority. And it's to be a priority in our prayers as well, not just in our lives. When we pray, we can be sure it changes things. Prayer is powerful because God is powerful and he answers prayer. And even if prayer seems to change nothing, you can be sure that it will change one thing. It will change you. Because as we pray, our hearts are aligned with the will and character of God. When this happens, how could we not praise him for his goodness, praise him for his faithfulness, praise him for his kindness? Prayer should cultivate thankfulness in our lives and vice versa. So, the nature of prayer, it's to be steadfast, it's to be dependent, it's to be unceasing, incessant even, persistent. Our attitude in prayer is that we're to be awake, alive, ready to pray. And that we are to be thankful. Because the Christian life is a thankful life. And now Paul gets into something very specific. The content of your prayer. And right here we're just going to focus on one aspect. One thing that should consume your prayers. There are many things. You should praise God continually for who he is. You should bring certain situations before him. You should pray for his work around the world. Yes, you should pray for hurting brothers and sisters. The list could go on and on. But specifically, Paul says this. Pray for us. He's speaking of him and his companions. That God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Pray for me that I would be able to preach the gospel even while I'm in prison for the gospel, is what, prison, is what Paul says, not prison, Paul. It's a pretty remarkable request, isn't it? I'm here. I've been beaten at times. I've been in prison, and maybe at this moment he's even in chains for the gospel. And yet pray that here in prison I would be able to preach the gospel clearly and faithfully. Would that be your request if you were stuck in prison for anything, let alone for the very thing you're praying for? Flip it a little bit to someone who might be in prison for a, a bad reason. Pray for me that I would continue stealing while I'm in prison because I've been put in prison for stealing. Like, man, this, this thing's already gotten you in trouble, Paul. And yet he is concerned with faithfulness. Proclaiming the good news of Christ because that is his mission and that is every Christian's mission. Paul's life was on mission it was a life that was specifically focused in proclaiming the gospel of Christ. It was a life wholly devoted to the Lord. 
I wonder what our prayer requests, what our prayers reveal about our priorities. Ask yourself, what did I pray for this week? When I prayed with my kids, what, what did I show them my priorities were? Paul's priority is to make the gospel clear. Move the mission of the church forward. I hope you pray for this in your life. Paul is praying for an open door, basically an opportunity, that there would be someone who is willing to hear the gospel in his life, that there would be a sinner who needs to be saved, that would be ready to hear the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. What is this news? That God is holy and good and perfectly righteous. That he created all things by the power of his word. And because of that, Psalm 24 says he owns all things. It's all his. And so you are his, whoever you are. God also created man and he called man good. He created us for a purpose. To worship him to glorify Him, to obey Him. But man in the garden, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God. They sinned. Casting all of mankind into sin. Breaking off our relationship with God. We are lawbreakers. Mankind sins and breaks God's law. And if we sin just once, because God is eternal and because God is holy, He would be perfectly right and perfectly just to punish us for our sin in hell for eternity, for one sin. He is that holy. He is that righteous. He is that serious. And yet God was not content to leave us. He planned before the beginning of the world even to save a people unto himself. And so he sent Jesus Christ to die for the sins of the world, to live a perfect life. Jesus, fully God and fully man, God incarnate, coming to the world to save sinners. When he died on the cross, he took the sins of everyone who would believe in him and he paid the full penalty of God's wrath for that sin. He rose again three days later, proclaiming, victory over sin and death. And he rose 40 days later. He ascended into heaven. And he continues working on the behalf of his children, interceding for them. What's the right response to the gospel? What is Paul praying for? Paul's saying, I want an opportunity to preach this. Why? So that people might repent of their sins and turn to trust Jesus Christ with faith for salvation, knowing that only Him and only what He has done on the cross can save them. Christian, I hope you pray for this. If you're here and you're new, or if you're here and you've never been to church, and you're not saved, you're still rebelling against God, you've not trusted in Christ truly, turn to Him now. The offer of salvation is open to every person. Christ is able to save you. He will save you from your sins and he will set you on a higher ground. Only Christ can bring you perfect contentment and perfect peace. Only Christ can fulfill you. This world will not fill you. It's full of broken cisterns. 
empty jars that hold nothing. Christ. Christ alone can save you and satisfy you. So turn to him. And Christian, keep praying for an opportunity to proclaim that news to other people. Perhaps the reason that you haven't had an opportunity to preach the gospel is because you haven't prayed for an opportunity to preach the gospel. Perhaps you're sitting there wondering, you're like, yeah, I'm not very good at evangelism. I'm not very good at, like, I know the gospel, I can say it, but I just don't feel, I don't feel like I'm good at it. Pray the Lord to strengthen you. Pray that the Lord would give you an opportunity and trust him for the strength to be faithful in that opportunity. If you don't pray for it, why are you expecting it to happen or why are you hoping it would happen? Pray for it. Pray for it every day and then you're just, you might just get smacked with opportunities left and right. You'd be like, oh wow, I didn't expect that. Maybe I'm going to pray a little bit less. No, pray more. People need to hear the gospel. Your brothers and sisters in Christ need to hear the gospel. Pray for opportunities to bring the hope of the gospel to every situation. We need to pray for this. Prayer is the seeds of revival. If we want to see the Lord work mightily in our church, in our community, in our homes, we must pray. Would it not bring God much glory? Would it not praise Him? Would it not bring Him joy if we prayed for the salvation of our family, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, the guy you meet at the store? Pray for an opportunity. Paul prays that the gospel would be made clear. That there would be an open opportunity, a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ. That's a term Paul uses in Colossians for the gospel. And in verse 4, that I would make it clear, he says. I think when we think about our lives, we're not going to apply this and pray for Paul to make the gospel clear. Paul's in heaven. But let's pray that our church and our pastors and anybody who would stand up anywhere and teach would make the gospel clear. 1 Timothy 3 tells us that the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. It's to uphold the truth and shine it forth like a lighthouse, like a beacon. We want our church, we want Grace Rancho to be a beacon for God's word to go forth, for God's gospel to go forth. Let's pray that this would continue happening. Let's pray every single day, every single day, that God would equip our elders, to preach the word faithfully, that God would strengthen Pastor Eric week in and week out to faithfully proclaim the word of God. Let's pray that the preaching of God's word would be used by his spirit to completely and radically transform lives. Pray that our kids, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren in generations to come would be able to come here and hear the word of God faithfully preached. Friends, this cannot happen without your faithful prayers. Charles Spurgeon was once showing a friend who came to visit his church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Um, He was showing him around the church. His friend asked him a question. Basically, he said, how have you had such a long ministry and you keep attracting people to come to this church? How in the world 
is your ministry continuing to be fruitful? People are coming every week, so many people, to hear the word of God preached. Spurgeon didn't say, well, you know, they call me the prince of preachers. You know, I'm, I'm pretty faithful. I study a lot. This is what he did. He said, when his friend said basically what's working, it's owing to my heating apparatus. Come, I'll show you. So Spurgeon took him to a large room in the basement, and he opened the door, and he said, look, there it is, my heating apparatus. And what was there on a Wednesday night were some thousand people praying for God's blessing and work to happen in the Wednesday night service that was to follow. When someone asked Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers in all of church history, how in the world is your ministry fruitful? God is clearly working. What's happening? His answer was prayer. His answer was small, faithful prayers of ordinary people bringing to God the things that matter most. Prayer fuels revival. Prayer fuels our lives. Prayer will fuel this church as we depend upon God. So let's be a church that is steadfast in prayer. Let's be a church that is committed to keeping our eyes open for needs that we can pray for with one another. Let's be a church that is marked by thankfulness. Perhaps you just want to grab someone after the service and say, I'm thankful for what Christ has done. Let's praise him. Let's pray. Let's be a church that prays for gospel opportunities, that God would bear much fruit as his word is proclaimed in this church. We need to be a praying people and we need to be a praying church because without prayer, without the help of God, we can do nothing. So right now, would you pray with me? Lord, we need you. Strengthen us to understand and apply your word. Help us be a praying people. Lord, may we not do this in our own strength. May we not just try to strive and strive and work and work and work in our own strength to pray, thinking that, like Pharisees, just our effort will make us righteous. Lord, but we ask that you would strengthen us by your spirit to pray, that you would help us depend upon you for the strength to even ask you for strength. Help us, Lord. May we commit ourselves to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.